0: This is A Million Other Choices, and I am your host, Kim. Today is one of those cases where I actually have lots of information to go off of. I have information on the victims, the perpetrator, I have lots of court documents, timelines, all kinds of good stuff for my brain that loves the little details. But what I don't have is the moments before the incident. Because no one that was there is alive now, and the guy that caused all this ruckus is, well, let's just say he's not really talking. So for me, that's a little bit disappointing. This is the kind of case that I don't normally cover, because it involves that pesky, not criminally responsible ruling. Now, on my exclusive feed a while back, I did cover a case that involved an NCR and I did all the research for you on the law and balancing between public safety and the rights of citizens that aren't responsible for their actions, but have maybe made progress through medications. It's a very interesting topic, but not one that I get into very often. These cases are usually very gruesome and terrifying. Like if you look at the Greyhound bus incident, when Vincent Lee literally beheaded Tim McLean on a public bus, that's terrifying and extremely graphic violence and causes a very visceral reaction of outrage and horror and disbelief. But when you get into the details and find out about more about what was happening with Vincent Lee and his delusions, you start to get outraged also at the system as a whole and it gets all complicated and confusing and just leaves you feeling like throwing up your hands and saying, who are we supposed to hold accountable here? Like, how do you get someone who is convinced people are after them to like, here, take these pills, they'll make you feel better. And then they they cause all kinds of nasty side effects. So the person then stops taking them and the delusions start again. And you can say, well, he's a grown-ass adult, and as grown-ass adults are responsible for their own behavior, but they aren't thinking in a neurotypical way, so they are behaving in a way that is appropriate to what their brain is telling them. Okay, so what about people like Ted Bundy? His brain was obviously making him do things he thought were appropriate. Should he not be accountable? Good point. So what's the answer? And I hate unanswerable questions, so I don't cover these cases often because I horribly rabbit hole and spiral and then my laundry doesn't get done and no one has any clean underwear. This is the murders of Bobby Lee Wright, Donald Adam Robichon, Constable Lawrence Robert Costello, and Constable Sarah May Helen Burns. If you are still listening after my introductory rant, Fredericton is the capital of our lovely Maritimes province of New Brunswick and sits along the banks of the St. John River that splits the city into two parts. New Brunswick, being on the coast, has a lot of humidity, so the summers are humid and hot, and winters, well, I've never been there, but they look pretty rough. Massive amounts of snow, and it's that really heavy, wet snow. It just always looks very brutal there in the wintertime. And I have to brush up on my history because although originally colonized by the French in the 1600s, the British took over in the 1700s and now the largest group are the Irish descendants. So I have no idea what's going on over there. Anyways, in the city of Fredericton, there's an apartment complex consisting of four three-story brick buildings with about 12 units in each building on a residential street of Brookside Drive, which is on the north side of the St. John River. And this complex is set up with the four buildings arranged kind of in a circle with a courtyard in the middle and the buildings are labeled A being the one closest to Brookside Drive and D overlooking the back parking lot. Apartments there are affordable, well at least for Canadian prices, at about $650 a month for a two bedroom, something Calgarians can only dream about and in one of the buildings, and I don't know which, but I'm thinking it was building C or D, lived 42-year-old part-time musician and auto body mechanic Donnie Robichon, who was a single dad to three teenage children, Zachary, Drayden, and Chloe, whom he adored. Things had been going pretty darn good for Donnie lately. He had recently secured the apartment in June of 2018, and just two weeks before, on August 2nd, had made it official with his new girl, and by making it official, I mean changing his relationship status on Facebook to being in a relationship with 32-year-old beauty, Bobby Wright. Donnie was going through a transitional year. In December of 2017, he had separated from his wife of 22 years, Melissa, very amicably, and had made the decision to leave behind being a full-patch member of the Bacchus motorcycle gang. Now, don't get too excited, the Bacchus gang is considered by investigators to be kind of like the Switzerland of motorcycle gangs. He enjoyed the Brotherhood and what his wife Melissa described as the wind therapy of riding his Harley Davidson gave him. But he wanted to spend more time with his kids and had realized that the Brotherhood had cost him time and attention to his family, so it was time to take more of a, I don't know, like a less full patch life. He was also starting to feel the effects of arthritis, which had slowed his riding and bass guitar playing, but I wasn't going to stand in the way of his passions completely. Not a lot is known about Bobby Wright. She was nicknamed Bubbles. It's her family, who consisted of Mum Brenda Lee, and dad, Robert, and siblings, Amanda and Robert, in particular, they have experienced a grief that few of us can fathom and have not spoken publicly about her, but friends of her described her as very quiet, sweet, and caring, and who she was always smiling. She originally grew up in Woodstock, New Brunswick, and had a small circle of very close friends. She had never been in any trouble and was just an all-around a lovely young woman." Her and Donnie had met only recently online and had their first date in person and had clicked instantly. Bobby had graduated from Canterbury High in Woodstock and got her medical administrator's diploma from the New Brunswick Community College and was working as a home support worker which suited her compassionate and nurturing nature. A huge fan of camping and bonfires and anything outdoors. On the early morning of Friday, August 10th, 2018, Donnie and Bobby were packing Donnie's car in the parking lot behind Building D. They had made plans that after work that day they were going to go zip lining, so they wanted to have everything ready so that they could just head out for the weekend without having to delay time on the road. At 7.07, loud pops rang out, waking the residents of all the buildings. Initially thought to be firecrackers or a car backfiring, but when looking out of their windows, were horrified to see the bodies of a man and a woman lying on the ground in the parking lot. 45-year-old Constable Robert Costello, a 20-year veteran of the force, husband to Jackie, father to four children, Casey, Caitlin, Katie, and Zach, and an officer described by his co-workers as, He was the only officer I have ever known to write a ticket and have the recipient thank him for it. And his partner, 43-year-old Sarah Burns, who had spent the first 14 years of her career raising her sons and had decided at the age of 35 to join the force, remembered by fellow officers of her training cadets as someone that would do anything for you and had a real true aspiration to be a police officer, looking out for every one of us there as if we were her own children, responded to the call and arrived pulling up to the building at 7.10, so only three minutes after the first shots had been fired, with another patrol car coming up behind them only seconds later. Constables Forward and Fox, which are their last names, I wasn't able to track down their first names, Everyone exited their vehicles, and Robert and Sarah headed around the back of the first building A towards the building C and D at the back. Building C is where the shots were reported to have come from. Constable Forward was standing on the sidewalk asking a bystander if they had seen or heard anything regarding shots fired, when suddenly another round of pops rang out. Sarah had only gotten out the words over her radio, Right here behind this car, there's a guy on the ground, we're going to need and then her voice was silenced by additional gunfire. Constable Forward ran around to the side of the building where Sarah and Robert had disappeared to and saw Sarah, Robert, and Donnie all laying on the ground shot and not moving. Constable Forward and Constable Fox ran both ran into the building C where the shots were coming from and secured the entrance and up the stairway and determined that the shots were coming from one of the apartments in that building on the top floor and whoever it was was shooting from their living room window into the courtyard. Police sent out Twitter and social media releases to keep people out of the area, and constables Fox and Forward radioed in, and more constables arrived, including an armored vehicle and SWAT team. An officer tried to pull Robert into his vehicle, and Justin McLeod, a resident, looked out of his window and ran out to help him, but was told to take covers as shots continued to ring out, but no one could see the shooter, just the barrel of a shotgun protruding from a bullet hole in the third-floor window of the apartment that he had barricaded himself in. When the SWAT team arrived, they fired tear gas into the window, and then one officer looked up at the third-floor window and locked eyes with a man, who aimed a long-barrel shotgun at him, at which point the officer fired, hitting the man in the side of his torso. At 9.30, so two and a half hours after the shooting had started, they were able to get into the apartment in Building C by force and had to climb over piles of clutter and arrest an injured 48-year-old Matthew Vincent Raymond. Donnie, Bobby, Sarah, and Robert were all declared deceased. Bullet holes riddled the third floor window and pebbled the building. According to witnesses, another bullet had ripped into an apartment in Building A from across the courtyard and shattered a family's early morning routine, but fortunately had not hit anyone. Donnie had been shot a total of five times in the head and abdomen. Bobby had been shot twice in the head and determined to be while she was seated in the vehicle. Robert Costello was shot five times in the chin and then through his bullet through vest as well, and Sarah Burns had been shot twice in the head. All shots were from a Simonov SKS semi-automatic rifle, which is not a restricted firearm in Canada and had been legally purchased. At the hospital, Matthew was questioned a couple of times, but asked for a lawyer, and when asked why he had shot his four victims, he had said he had no idea. Further expanding on that, he said "I." I think this stuff has to stay for another day. I just want to remain silent on the main topic. Don't know why, why it happened. I'm just going to stick with that. Have to say, I want to remain silent so I can actually go to bed. So, without his commentary to build on, they start an investigation into Matthew's background. His landlord said that he was just a guy, that he rode his bike pretty much everywhere and used to come into the property office to pay his rent in person and was always friendly and smiling. A search of his computer hard drives found a number of videos of family events of him with friends, and a lot of his videos were focused on mountain bike biking and video gaming. But following the timeline of videos and information on his hard drives found that in March of 2017, some of the content took a bit of a shift. The focus was now on ISIS and their actions in the Middle East, including graphic and brutal images and videos and also that he could identify demons. He was also a lot more interested suddenly in the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his immigration policies. By August of 2017, he had added occult numbers and demons to his list of interests. He had a YouTube channel where he would post videos about Trudeau claiming that he was dangerous. Within the clutter of his apartment, they found a large amount of notebooks, all scribbled with incomprehensible math calculations and descriptions of people coming into his apartment and moving things around and about the constant pounding on the walls that he was hearing. One page in red jiffy marker reading, You serpents picked the wrong man to test. I am not alone. He's watching with the numbers 331 and 33 and a third with you and an arrow pointing to the three. There was one particular chilling account of a child that would come to the courtyard area outside his window and whisper, Come play with me, baby, to him. There was also a small arsenal of shotguns and hundreds of rounds of different types of ammunition. Interviews with Matthew's family started to reveal a timeline of some of his problems. In the spring of 2017, Matthew had asked his sister to sign an online petition against Trudeau's proposal to ban Islamophobia and systemic discrimination. She had refused, so he started taking his protests outside of his local coffee shop and the newsstand where he bought his daily news. The owners started to notice a change in him and asked him to move on. Before 2017, both the coffee shop owner and the newsstand owner had found him to be friendly and a good and loyal client. He used to chat them up about biking and video games, but in 2017 had suddenly switched to constantly going on about immigration. He got into an argument with his sister and brother-in-law over their not talking to their children enough about God, and that they needed to get rid of all their rock band t-shirts because the music industry was evil. He had told them in an email that he would no longer be visiting them at their house until they wised up, and he had kept to his word, missing out on his niece and nephew's birthdays. At their last communication, he had told his sister that he could communicate with animals. Up to about four months before the shootings, he had been living with his mother, Shirley, but she had sold her house in April of 2018, so he had been forced to move into the Brookside Apartments. During the last year that he lived with her, she noticed that he had started to talk a lot about fake news, conspiracy theories, the government, and religion, particularly religion and demons. He felt that there was a second coming and an Armageddon was just around the corner, and that he started to stockpile food and water. She noticed that suddenly he could talk for two hours straight without any break, and he would go around closing windows to make sure that neighbors didn't hear what he was talking about. His mom had told him that he needed to see a doctor, but he had said he wasn't the one that was sick. It was her. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty-nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. So as is usual in almost all murder trials here in Canada, Matthew would have to be found fit to stand trial before he could even answer to the four counts of first-degree murder that he had been charged with. In October of 2019, he was originally found unfit as he was taking medication at the time but against his will and wasn't able to communicate properly with his lawyer. So a second attempt was made in August 2020, so he had made some good ground, so that went underway at the height of the pandemic. This is a pre-trial regarding his fitness that was started with physical distancing. This is actually the first jury selection that took place during the pandemic. Of the 70 people selected for the jury pool, which is the max that they could fit due to the social distancing guidelines, 40 of them were excused almost immediately, giving fears of a possible mistrial. Fortunately, they were able to continue and he was found to be fit to stand trial. So a trial was scheduled for late September of 2020, but Justice Fred Ferguson recused himself for the full trial because the defense claimed that during the fitness trial, he had demonstrated bias, which was never really elaborated on. So for the trial, Ferguson was replaced by Justice Larry Landry. And the actual trial, there wasn't a lot of witnesses so much for whether or not Matthew Raymond had been the shooter. I mean, that part was pretty clear, but more about what his state of mind had been at the time of the shooting. Dr. Ralph Hawley, who's a psychiatrist at the Restigoshi Hospital where Matthew was being housed since his arrest, he diagnosed Matthew with schizophrenia that was causing persecutory delusions. Uh, He thought that the correctional officers and the court staff were trying to kill him, and his schizophrenia was causing disorganized speech. When first meeting Matthew, he had refused treatment and denied having any mental illness at all. So he stopped taking his meds completely and had stopped sleeping. He said, quote, nobody can fake sleeping problems except if you have some drugs. He also refused to shower and was often aggressive. And because of this, he had started to be treated with antipsychotics by injection and involuntarily, something they called a keep fit order. And once that started to happen, he started getting better and making more sense, but he was still denying that he had a mental illness. He wrote in his report, the primary factors relative to Mr. Matthew Raymond's violence risk stem directly from his mental disorder. His insight remains poor with rigid thinking. He uses immature coping mechanisms to deal with stress, such as denial and isolation of effect. He has limited protective factors, such as family support, and work which contribute to the risk of recidivism. Dr. Julian Goyard testified that Matthew met all of the criteria for an NCR or not criminally responsible determination. He had a mental illness, he couldn't appreciate the nature and consequences of his actions, and he couldn't know that what he was doing was wrong, saying, quote, it's a very sad situation Four people lost their lives because of the actions of a deranged man. Something switches in his brain, his mind suddenly adopts several delusional ideas, and with each passing day before August tenth, two 2018, he was getting more and more psychotic. Dr. Goyer testified that because his delusions at the time made him believe 100% in his mind that he was shooting demons and not people, was why he had shown little to no remorse just after the shootings. Like, does he feel remorse? Why does he feel remorse if he's killing demons? He should feel overjoyed doing God's work. That's why you see less emotion, less of a reaction. Matthew did show considerably more emotions and regret at the trial because after treatment, he realized the horror of what he had actually done. More sadly, Dr. Goyer said that the mental illness motive is staring you in the face. It's staring at myself in the face. But for a mental illness, this event would not have happened but added that he wouldn't have gotten treatment because he didn't have any insight into his illness because he didn't feel that he was ill at all. Quote, This man lacked that capacity of knowing what he was doing, that he was picking up a gun and shooting human beings. He was far gone. His mind was beriddled with numbers. This is a person who believed he was doing God's work. He's acting from a totally deranged perspective, a mind that had snapped. There was no belief that he was doing something wrong, morally wrong, or legally wrong. Matthew also testified briefly during the trial and was asked a few questions by the Crown, hinting that there might have been some organized planning involved, asking at one point, I'm going to suggest that you knew picking up the firearm and firing at them would kill them, to which Matthew said, I did. I'm going to suggest to you, sir, that you knew it was wrong. I did not. I would never do such a thing. It goes against everything. And when asked why he had used the Simonov SKS rifle, which had been modified to hold double the usual number of bullets and not the shotgun, he had said, it was the main rifle. The shotgun was more of a backup. You altered the rifle so that you could fire at more targets. I wouldn't call them targets. I was defending myself for the end times. Matthew denied understanding, that they were people that he was shooting. So in the end, he was found, and I think rightfully so, not criminally responsible, and sent to stay at the Restagoshi Hospital as essentially a prisoner, but with an undetermined sentence of time that he has to serve. Robert Costello's widow, Janet McLean, said, because of the not criminally responsible verdict, he will be eligible for release at some point, and every time those hearings happen, we as the victim's families have to revisit... We don't ever get the opportunity to pack up our grief and put it away. His lawyer said of Matthew that his grief that he's expressed with us has been palatable in a physical sense, but almost completely overcome with grief, and that it may be a long way out in the future before Raymond is no longer considered a threat to the public and released. Fredericton Police Force Chief Robert Brown said, I am fully aware that no one has emerged from this situation unscarred. It is important that we respect the decision that has been passed down as we move forward. Janet McLean further told reporters that I'm really struggling with forgiveness for this individual. If I spoke honestly, I would probably say some things that could hurt some feelings, and I don't want to do that. I work volunteer in the community with mental health, and I understand the complexities of mental health issues. I don't feel a hundred percent like he was sincere in his testimony. I feel like he pulled the wool over on us to some degree. And yet at the same time, I don't want to pass judgment because I don't suffer from the same mental illness he does. I don't understand what it's like to be inside the head of someone who has schizophrenia or delusional disorder. But that being said, his lack of remorse is really insulting for me as a family member of one of the victims. It's utterly terrifying. I never want another family to have to go through what our families have gone through. And this gentleman has demonstrated that he's unwilling to take his medication unless he's forced. And for that reason alone, I feel like he will never be able to be released. And I just hope whenever review board is assessing him for that, we'll also see that. But given today's verdict, I don't have much faith in that. In April 2023, he was reviewed if he could leave the psychiatric hospital for supervised outings, which is only after five years after the shootings, but they came to the conclusion that the accused still poses a significant threat to the safety of the public, but that privileges may be granted for the purposes of treatment. So during the review hearing, Matthew read from his prepared statement. He said that he is very sorry for his victims' losses, including the RCMP, the Fredericton Police Force, the families, and everyone who has been affected by his actions. He said that at the time, he did not know that he was schizophrenic. He will never forget the precious victims. But Janet said it was just a bunch of words. I don't believe him. I don't believe him in court. I don't believe him now. I don't believe he has any remorse. Remorse looks good on paper and gives people sympathy for him, and personally, I don't believe he deserves any. However, she didn't have an issue with the outings as long as they were supervised. Her bigger fear is that he's eventually going to be given unsupervised outings. Quote, I don't think that he'll do anything with supervision. In fact, I'm not even all that concerned that he'll do anything without supervision initially. However, this is the first step in him gaining more and more independence and my concern is that the more independence that he has, the less likely he is to take his medication and continue with his treatment and that's when the risk becomes more palatable to me. I don't think he can ever live independently outside of the facility without supervision. I don't think he can be trusted to do that. He couldn't be trusted to live amongst the public prior to killing my spouse and three other people, so I don't think that he can be trusted long term. But forensic psychiatrist Emile Frenette said that Matthew's risk of general violence is moderate. The risk for serious harm is currently low. There is no indication that that the client intends to commit violence that could cause serious harm in the upcoming year. There is no indication that the client plans to perpetrate violence in the near future. The client is stable and there's no warning signs that have been associated with past violence that are currently in an elevated state. Considering the risk management strategies that would be put into place, the risk of violence would be sufficiently controlled to offer Mr. Raymond the privileges that were requested. She went on to say that the research shows that a person is more likely to be violent if he, if he engaged in violence in early life. Prior to this tragedy, according to collateral information, the client never engaged in violence that resulted in physical or psychological harm. Mr. Raymond does not present a pervasive pattern of violence. Rather, he committed an isolated act of severe violence and that he had verbalized some odd beliefs. He also appears distrustful and suspicious of others at times. He is also sometimes reluctant in sharing certain information, possibly by fear that the information will be used against him. He also tends to bear grudges easily and tends to choose solitary activities. But he never engaged in violence at any point since his admission to the RHC, even when clients tried to provoke Mr. Raymond by insulting him and being aggressive towards him. He did not engage in violence. By all accounts, Raymond takes his medication regularly and participates in all therapeutic sessions although he continues to under-report his symptoms. The review board specified that any absence from Restagoshi Hospital Center must be for medical reasons or for any purpose that is necessary for the accused treatment. This disposition will remain operative until a new disposition order of the new Brunswick Review Board is issued. And that was the murders of Bobby Wright, Donnie Robichon, Robert Costello, and Sarah Burns. Discuss amongst yourselves. It's a tough one. I feel everything that Janet says that you understand. You don't want to judge, but you're still just mad as hell. These are really, really, really hard cases. And with that, I'm going to be back again next week with another case. In the meantime, you know what to do. Do your rate review thing. And as always, thank you so much for listening.